We're going to read a long passage this week compared to last week. Chapter 20 of First Kings. Not, the, not quite the whole thing, um, <clears throat> but we're going to read up through verse 30, and then I'll preach on it. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army, and there were 32 kings with him, and horses, and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and fought against it. Then he sent messengers to the city, to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your most beautiful wives and children are also mine. The king of Israel replied, It is according to your word, my lord, O king. I am yours and all that I have. Then the messengers returned and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Surely I sent to you, saying, You shall give me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow I will send my servants to you, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants, and whatever is desirable in your eyes, they will take in their hand and carry away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Please observe and see how this man is looking for trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. All the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you sent for to your servant at the first I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, May the gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria will suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. Then the king of Israel replied, Tell him, let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the temporary shelters, he said to his servants, Station yourselves. So they stationed themselves against the city. Now behold, a prophet of the Lord approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Ahab said, By whom? So he said, Thus says the Lord, By the young men of the rulers of the provinces. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? And he answered, You. Then he mustered the young men of the rulers of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them he mustered all the people, even all the sons of Israel, 7,000. They went out at noon, 
while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the temporary shelters with the 32 kings who helped him. The young men of the rulers of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out, and they told him, saying, Men have come out from Samaria. Then he said, If they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out from the city, the young men of the rulers of the provinces, and the army which followed them. They killed each his man, and the Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on a horse with horsemen. The king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and killed the Arameans with a great slaughter. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself and observe and see what you have to do. For at the turn of the year, the king of Aram will come against you again. Now the servants of the king of Aram said to him, Their gods are gods of the mountain. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But rather, let us fight against them in the plain and surely we will be stronger than they. Do this thing, remove the kings, each from his place, and put captains in their place, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. At the turn of the year, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans, and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. The sons of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went to meet them. And the sons of Israel camped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Arameans filled the country. Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Arameans have said, The Lord is a God of the mountains, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So they camped one over against the other seven days, and on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the sons of Israel killed of the Arameans 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city, and the wall fell on 27,000 men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber. This is the word of the Lord. So, here we are, 500 years after the Reformation began, still in the middle of the Reformation. How is it possible that something can be going on still 500 years later? How can I say that we're still in the middle of the Reformation? Well, the Reformation's even older than 500 years Honestly, here in our passage that we read this morning, 
we see the need of reformation among God's people. And we see God sending prophets so that the people will be changed in their knowledge and in their theology so that they will be worshiping the true God as they ought. And that's what the Reformation, as, as we call it, was about. It was about changing our theology and our knowledge of God so that we will get true and proper knowledge that comes from God's Word. If you think of Samaria, the capital city of Israel, and you know that false worship has been going on in that kingdom since the day that it was founded, you remember that that first king of Israel set up the golden calves so that the people would worship golden calves instead of worshiping Yahweh. And you think through what has happened as we've studied through 1 Kings and you get to Ahab and you know Ahab and his wife Jezebel were not leading people to a proper understanding of who God is and how he works in his people and in the world. Quite the opposite. They were leading the people further into sin. The people, including Ahab, had seen proof that God was God at the mountain where they were competing. God and Baal. Contests that God set up. Let's see if Baal can accomplish anything for you. At the end of that day, they had slaughtered 450 of the prophets of Baal and the people had all responded, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And yet, Ahab was not repentant. Ahab continues down his path of wickedness and rebellion. Ahab is really such a terrible king that that's part of why we get so much about Ahab in the book of Kings. And yet here God saves Ahab twice. What in the world is God thinking? The simple answer is that God is God, and we are not. Right? God is demonstrating that He is God, once again. And not just demonstrating that He has actual power and that Baal doesn't, right? But demonstrating that he is active and involved, that he is sovereign, not just able to do a trick now and then. So prior to 
the start of battle, God sends a prophet to tell them what is going to happen and how it's going to happen. The Israelites will defeat this great Aramean army. And when it happens, everybody will know that it wasn't just a fluke. Whoa! You know, David and Goliath's story where the small army manages to beat the big army. And in part, you know, is that, uh, uh, is that in Freakonomics? Who is, who, is, who is it that writes about how David and Goliath work? You know, that as it continues forward, we continue to see David's beat Goliath's because, why? Because there's some fundamental flaw in the Goliath. And so we look at here, and here's this fundamental flaw. You've got 32 kings on the battlefield. It's a huge army, but man, when you've got 32 people in charge, it's bound to be a mess. And they're not even experts, really. You know, what we need is commanders. The Arameans are convinced they understand what was going on, what the problems were after they've been defeated, right? And ultimately, they point to a few changes that need to be made, practical changes, but ultimately they point to theology. They say, God, that Yahweh thing, that, that God that the Israelites have, see, that's a God that is a God of the mountains. So let's just fix that problem also while we're making changes. And that will really be the turning point. We can't expect a God of the mountains to have any benefit if we're in the plains. The God's powers are limited. Limited by geography, limited by the space-time continuum, you understand. There's only so much that these gods can actually accomplish, and they have their places where they're strong, and their places where they're weak, and let's just go to a place where this Yahweh fellow's weak. We'll fix it right up. But God is not just a God. Yahweh is the one true God, the Lord of the heavens and the earth. And so, just as he said, the army was defeated, and he was defeated by the, the, uh, the young men and with Ahab leading in that first battle. And then when they come back and they fight on the plains, because... The Arameans had said God is going to be weak on the plains. God sends a message again and says, because of that, I'm going to deliver you again. Did Ahab deserve to be saved from these two attacks by Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram? Ahab definitely deserved to die. As a matter of fact, God's judgment had already been stated, right? That we know, if, it doesn't matter how, 
how far back you want to go, when kings and when the people of God turn away from him, they will end up losing the kingdom, the land. God's blessings will be taken away. But God has delayed his judgment on Ahab, hasn't he? How should Ahab have responded? Ahab should have responded by worshiping the Lord, right? It's pretty easy, it's pretty simple. He should have worshiped the Lord. He should have reformed his theology. And if he had reformed his theology, it would have reformed his worship. There's two theological words that you may have heard or maybe not. I'm going to teach them to you today. I want you to remember the concept even if you don't remember the words. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Now, if one of you kids could tell me what the word unorthodox means. Have you ever heard the word unorthodox? Can you use it in a sentence? Can you spell it? What does it mean? Don't spell it. Not normal. That was an unorthodox way of shooting the basket. He jumped and slammed it against the ground between his legs and it bounced up and went into the hoop behind him. That was unorthodox. That's not the way you're supposed to do it. That's what unorthodox means. So orthodox means the normal, proper, right way. Okay, and, and orthodoxy is believing, teaching, understanding the true, proper, correct teachings about God. Okay? So orthodoxy means believing the right things about God. Orthopraxy is easy to remember because it kind of sounds like practice. Instead of believing the right things, it is doing, practicing the right things. And what I want you to remember conceptually, even if you can't remember those two words, because half the time I can't remember them, whenever I want to come up with them, I'm like, what are those two words? Orthodoxy and orthopraxy, having correct beliefs and having correct practice, can't be separated. They always go together. And the moment you don't have orthodoxy, you have some false belief about God, it will affect your actions, your practice. Even if you don't recognize your false beliefs, your false beliefs will still affect what you do. And so we say that we believe in God's sovereignty. 
right? We believe that God is in charge as he's demonstrated in this passage. God is in control of the world, right? And if he's in control of the whole world, is he also in control of that little bit of the world that is your life? He is, isn't he? Of course, there have always been people who have thought that God was in control in the big picture kind of way, but not in the little picture kind of way. Yeah, I mean, he's making sure that the big picture things that need to happen, happen. But in terms of what happens in my life, eh, you know, he can't really be bothered with somebody and something so minor as my life, my problems. But we're good Reformed folks, so we know that when we say God is sovereign, it includes all the way down to the little things in each of our lives. So we say, but is that really what we believe? Is it really what we believe? Is our, or, is, is our belief truly orthodox? One of the ways that you can test that is by looking at your practice. Because orthodoxy and orthopraxy can't be separated. You can look at your practice and you can judge what your beliefs are. The Arameans believed that God had power after he defeated them. But they were wrong in believing that he only had power in the mountains. But their practice flowed out of their beliefs, didn't it? They decided they were going to wage war against God's people again. And it would be fine this time as long as they fought in the plains where God didn't have power. Their understanding, their knowledge, their thinking about God affected their practice. It had an outworking in what they did. And so, Ahab, Ahab had certain beliefs. And you can tell what his beliefs are through what he does. You can tell what he believes through what he does, just like you can tell with the Arameans what they believe through what they do. Ahab had to know that he didn't deserve any help from the Lord, Yahweh. But God saves him. Saves his people, saves his capital city, saves his wife, his children, his money even. Ben-Hadad does not get them. Why? Again, God says, so that you will know that I am the Lord. He says it twice in what we read, once singular you, while the prophet is talking to Ahab, and once plural you, you will know 
You will know. Y'all will know. One of those strange things that some English dialects have plural you and others don't. It'd be helpful if we could get y'all inserted in the Bible and get a southern translation so we could see when it's singular and plural, right? I'm sure somebody's done a southern version. That was, I'm way off. God first saves, and the response should be to glorify him. When God is merciful and gracious to us, we don't deserve it any more than Ahab did. We don't deserve it any more than Ahab did. We might be better than Ahab, but we don't deserve it any more than he did. You understand? God is gracious, and that graciousness, the definition is undeserved favor, right? God's grace is always undeserved. Nevertheless, it is true. Ahab deserved much worse treatment than this, right? How should we respond when God is gracious? How should we respond when God saves? We must glorify God. We see no hint of that with Ahab, do we? What did Ahab believe? Maybe he believed it was hopeless for him. Yeah, God's the one who saved. I acknowledge, I admit, you know, his messenger came, his prophet came. He said he was going to save and it, I mean, and how to go about fighting. And sure enough, we won against all odds. There's, it's clear. But you know, I can't hope for anything good from the Lord. I can't hope for his favor and his blessing. What? He just poured it out on you. Maybe Ahab was an unstable man, double-minded. Wow, praise God, he saved us. Let's go get drunk. We don't get any hint of Ahab praising God. That's the key. Right? We don't get any hint of Ahab giving glory where glory is due, which is to the name of God. And so when God accomplishes big or little things in your life or in your state or in your nation, will you glorify God, or will you look at the earthly and think, wow? Will you look at the men that were involved and think, wow, you know, Ahab went out at the head of the 
princes, there were just 7,000 of them, to fight this hordes, and he won. You can't do that in our passage, right? You, because the prophet showed up. And so you're, well, I mean, we know it was God who accomplished it. But what about in your life? When you don't have a prophet pointing out to you specifically that God is going to do this and how. Do you give glory to God or do you give glory to man? We must glorify God when he saves You know, one time, my dad and mom were driving on the interstate, the loop north of Indianapolis, <clears throat> and uh, driving. They, they, they started driving south down the west side of town, and a box truck changed lanes into the rear quarter panel of the car. So my dad's driving... Mom's in the passenger seat, and my aunt is in the back seat. And all of a sudden, going 70 miles an hour, they're doing 360s. I'm sure their lives flashed before their eyes and all that, and pretty soon they came to a stop in the center median, uh, in, in, on the lane, because there's, there's uh, concrete barriers there. So they're on the shoulder, the center shoulder, facing the right direction, parallel to that concrete barrier, out of traffic. And my aunt looks at my dad and says, Good driving, Tim. Her theology was bad. God had saved. You can't, my, my dad just started laughing. You think I had anything to do with that? Like, I was just along for the ride, you know? But how easy is it for us to talk ourselves up after the fact? It's, it's really easy, isn't it? In fact, it's extremely common. It's so common that while I was reading Master and Commander this last week, it's just, a, it's just an incidental little throwaway story in there that one of the nobody men on the boat is back home with his family after a great naval battle victory. And he's talking about how he's responsible for giving the counsel to the captain and he's the one who, it, he's just talking up his own glory with his family after the fact. Why would you write about that if it wasn't what we all see and do all 
the time. It's, it, it may be only because my aunt said, good driving, Tim, that my dad could never take any credit for that. I don't know. It's so explicit in that moment, right? I don't think my dad ever would have taken credit for that. But you know how easy it would have been, right? Thinking back, wow, that was amazing. Remembering, what did I do? Well, let's, yeah, I guess I'll reconstruct and I'll, you know, maybe probably what I did was, How many times have we done this sort of thing? We just speak forgetting that God is the one who is acting. Can you imagine praising Ahab? Ahab is a wicked, wicked man. And yet God used him to lead the people to plan the battle to save the city and the nation. Great job, Ahab! No. The thing is, when God, when His glory, when His name, when His majesty is at stake, even if the king is wicked, He can use that wicked king to bring glory to His name, to accomplish His will, to demonstrate His power. We glorify God, not the wicked rulers that he used. Nobody can feel justified for being an Ahab fan after this. Right? See, I knew it. I knew we had the great king. You can't do that. God is the one who is giving victory, right? Now, what about Trump? Can anybody feel justified for thinking Trump is a great man? You can't. You must look at him objectively and recognize this man is wicked. You must. And you must recognize that God has chosen to use a wicked man to destroy his enemies, to bring down wicked laws. A wicked man. All your praise and glory goes to God. All of it. It must or your theology is bad. And the moment your theology is bad, you will begin to do bad things. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy, they go together. 
And so just like the Arameans and ultimately just like Ahab, if you have wrong beliefs about God, it will affect what you do. The Arameans make the tragic error of underestimating God. Their belief, right? The belief leads to the action of fighting against his people, claiming that they have figured out a way around God's power, around God's sovereignty. It wasn't until I was reading a commentary by a man named Dale Ralph Davis on this passage that I saw this orthodoxy and orthopraxy thing just laid out so clearly the bad theology of the Arameans. But here's the thing. What I want you to recognize, if you go back to that first battle, what I want you to recognize is the Arameans are better than most Americans in looking at that battle in their theology. They attribute it to God. They just think that they can get around God this way. Aha, we'll find a place where God isn't in control, where God isn't in charge, where God isn't powerful. And we'll go there and we'll continue to pursue our wicked ends. But how many Americans won't even attribute to God what God is doing? How quick we are to trust or credit men. Or how slow we are to credit God. So slow we are to credit God that we would rather credit random chance, happenstance, or even aliens. Anything but God. How is it that this happened in history? Oh, it could have been God. It must have been random chance. Energy and so forth and matter. and Boom, life. Right? And other people are like, nah, it doesn't make any sense. Are you kidding me? It's too complicated. Had to have been created. Must have been aliens. Or we're living in a simulation, you see. Anything but God. Of course, I know you would never do that, right? You believe in God, you believe in a creator. Okay, do you believe in a creator? that is actually engaged in your life in this world? Of 
Or have you limited God's power and underestimated him? Your theology leads you to realize wrongly that you can't trust God for this area, and so therefore you have to take control of that. Maybe a better way of asking the question is, what area do you think you can't trust God to have power, control, and goodness? What area in your life are you an Aramean? Yeah, I know there's a God. Yeah, I know Yahweh's powerful. Yeah, he destroyed us. But see, there's this place. There's this one place in my life. This one area in my life. Where I just don't really trust God to give me what's good. I, I don't really I don't really think God has what it takes to save me down on the plane. Or I, over here I can do this without having to worry about God's judgment. Wherever that place is, you have bad theology, it will lead to bad practice. It will lead you to doing things faithlessly. It doesn't matter that you believe in a sovereign God that is all-powerful, all-knowing, wise, loving, holy, why doesn't it mean anything? Because you don't actually believe it in that one area. There's that one place, that one thing, that one person, that one job, that one responsibility where you can't trust God. Really? That's, that's the one place you can't trust God? What will you do when your bad theology becomes bad practice? You don't want to be out on the plane trusting in your strength, recognizing all too late that God is not just a God in the mountains. Not just a God on Sunday morning. Not just God when you're at church. Not just God when you're with Christian friends. Every time You act like an Aramean. There will be consequences. I don't mean God will destroy you like he destroyed the Arameans, though that will come if you continue in rebellion against the Lord. 
He is not shy in saying from the beginning, the wages of sin is death. It will go badly for you. But no, what I mean is, if you want God to be your God, you must worship him as he is, as he has declared himself to be. It's not accidental that the bad theology of the Roman Catholic Church prior to the Reformation led to people buying and selling forgiveness for themselves and for others. Bad theology led to bad practice. Bad practice that led to people going to hell, putting their faith in a piece of paper rather than in God. Why would you Buy what is freely offered. Come, buy bread and milk, water that leads to eternal, without cost. Without cost. It's crazy. Now, why would you believe that God is not good? Because I'm suffering in this area of my life. That's why I don't believe God is good over there. I know God is good, but I'm suffering in this area of my life, and so he must not be good. And then what happens? You act on it. You act on that wrong belief. You take things into your own hands. You begin to realize, oh, I better be in control. I can't trust God to be in control. And you find yourself fighting with God instead of receiving his blessing. Don't be an Aramean. Don't be an Aramean. God is God. All the time. He loves his people all the time. In every area of your life, in all of your weakness, in all of the sorrows, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Put your faith in him. Worship him. And then you will walk by faith when you see with eyes that are opened to his gracious loving kindness that he pours out on his people and the wrath that he pours out on his enemies. When you see it, you'll have good theology and that good theology will change the way you live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, change our hearts. Open our eyes to see you as you truly are. So that your name will be magnified and glorified. So that, Father, we will not give praise and glory to men. 
so that we will not take it for ourselves. Father, may we not be like Ahab. May we not be like the Arameans. But Father, be gracious to us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.